Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Astrid Edwards and I am going to be joined by my co-host Sally Spicer. Today, we are talking to Dr. Norman Swan. Norman is a multi-award winning broadcaster, investigative journalist and producer. He is the host of Radio National's Health Report and the co-host of everybody's favourite pandemic podcast, Coronacast. Norman has also just released his first book, So You Think You Know What's Good For You. Now, We recorded this interview while Norman was in lockdown in Sydney and unfortunately somebody decided to use their leaf blower outside Norman's study. The audio quality is not perfect but we do believe that listening to Dr Norman Swan makes it worth it. Norman Swan, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. Oh, I'm delighted. Thanks for having me. Now, I have to admit, I live in Melbourne and I have been listening to Coronacast in a dedicated fashion for the last year or so. I have woken up with the sound of your voice and this is a little bit of a fangirl moment for me. Thank you for bringing us Coronacast. We are not here to talk about Coronacast. We are here to talk about your very new book, So You Think You Know What's Good For You. But before we get into that, I want to ask, how do you wake up every morning as a doctor, as a physician, and as someone with a long broadcasting career and deal with the information that is changing so quickly and that so many Australians are like me waking up to listen to you? So luckily, you know, waking up is not the problem. It accumulates during the day. But I must say, and I cover this in the book, that when it comes to sleeplessness, the first rule of medicine, by the way, is do as I do, but not as I say. When I wake up during the night, I have to say that I pick up my phone and I go into the journals and I go into the New York Times and the Financial Times and so on, and I catch up on the news of the day before I get up in the morning. Then I'm so knackered by about four o'clock in the morning that I fall asleep and sleep in. So it's usually the middle of the night that I dread rather than first thing in the morning. But yeah, it's a constant challenge to keep across on massive amounts of information, most of which is hard to trust. Norman, this book, I saw one write-up of it describing it as your new book about wellness bullshit, which I thought was quite an interesting take on it. That's a compliment, by the way. Yeah. As a professional, what kind of wellness myths have you seen take hold in the pandemic that perhaps weren't quite as ubiquitous beforehand? And how has that come into your book? You know what? I think people have become much more settled in their view of health during the pandemic than before. So one thing I've noticed over the last 14, 15, 16 months, however long it's been, I can barely remember what happened last week, much remember last year. But what I do remember are the questions, and we've had probably three or 400,000 questions into CoronaCast. And it's the same audience. It's a very broad audience. It's not a typical ABC audience. And the beginning, they were asking, how do I wash my hands? Can I use soap? What about the swimming pool? Those sorts of basic questions. And now from really the identical audience, it's, I read that paper that you quoted from in The Lancet, and I reckon you got the statistics wrong. People's health literacy has just gone through the roof. 
and they become much more critical, much less trusting of knowledge sources, which is a very good thing to be. I don't think you should naturally trust any source, including mine, and much more assertive in many ways. So I think it's in a good place. And you know, during this time, you've seen the demise of Pete Evans. And I, I do in the book say, you know, be careful what you wish for with a paleo diet. In Paleolithic times, people died around about the age of 28. So I just think that there's a healthy scepticism out there, which is fantastic. Now, the approach that you take in this book is very broad and it's the common sense. You are not here for a wellness fad. You are not here for a particular diet. You are not here with a to-do list for us all to follow. You are asking your readers to have a good think and apply it to themselves. And I guess I wanted to ask... How did you navigate doing that in a book form? I mean, clearly a book is very different in terms of a medium than a podcast, but a book is printed, you can't change it, you can't read an updated reference the next week and update your audience. So I guess I wanted to ask how you approached your research and your expertise in a book that someone might pick off their shelf for the next couple of years. Excellent question. And one that keeps me up at night. So there's no easy answer to that. But it's, the information in the book's been around for a while. You don't, by and large, get big zigs and zags in, in, in medical knowledge, even though it's frustrating for general public that they might read that sugars, you know, that some substance is good for you one day and causes cancer the next, and that drives people up the wall. But by and large, the medical knowledge or health knowledge changes glacial slowness. So it's unlikely, I hope, you know, I'll stand to be corrected, that things will change radically overnight. You know, in some things, I'm a bit, I sound as if I'm a bit out on the edge, but it's actually the edge is where the knowledge is. And so I'm pretty confident that there's not a lot there that will need to be updated, much as I'd love it to sell out and have to do revisions. I suppose my approach to this book was, it ended up being a bit of a memoir, and it's quite idiosyncratic. So there's, there's I tell stories which are quite personal stories, some of which are quite funny, some of which are quite sad in some ways. And... I, I tell, so I tell stories illustrating the point from my own life. The original intention was that this become like your medical, an updated 19th century medical encyclopedia where your child gets a fever and you go to Dr. Swan's medical book and you find out, look up fever. It's not that. It's a very idiosyncratic journey through things that I think are important. And where it started was I was actually giving a, a whole series of talks, probably in 60, 70 talks over the last few years, to people who were aged under 40, mostly actually in the advertising industry, but largely in that group. And I started off giving talks on health. Then I realized this was a highly literate group, people who knew what they wanted from their health. And I just went in without a talk. And we started, I just said, ask me anything you like. And I kept the questions that people asked. And this is not a question and answer book by any ways, but I know the issues that people are concerned about. And they're actually issues that all age groups are concerned about. But I've written it in a way, slightly tongue-in-cheek, that a 35-year-old would actually enjoy. Shorts, you're fed up, short summary at the top, do I read any more? And at certain points I'll say, if you're getting bored now, just skip two paragraphs and come back from the main line. And of course, it had, there had to be sex, drugs and rock and roll in it as well. So there's nothing medical in the book. It's all about health and about your choices. It's what drives me nuts about health book literature is it wags its finger at you, tells you what to do, and gives you simple answers for complicated problems. So it, it treats you like an adult. What do you want out of life? Do you want to be cut 
washboard, abdomen, thin thighs. Is that what you want? Fine, if you want to. I'm not, I make no judgment of it. Even when I'm talking about ice, I make no judgment on it. But you know, just know what, what you're getting for what you're spending your time and money on. Norman, I think that something that you just touched on there, which is very resonant and something that certainly I've noticed during the pandemic is the prevalence of stories and narratives, especially in such a time of upheaval. People are looking for those narrative answers and for that, you know, I suppose they're looking for the solutions and the meaning. I'm interested in how you think that in the longer term is going to impact the medical community. Do you think there will be a bit more of a transformation towards something that is a bit more narrative and perhaps speaks in layman's terms? Because as I've seen the medical community and the media as well, it can be a little bit myopic, a little bit parochial, sort of projecting what they think that people actually care about, as opposed to, as you say, doing a Q&A and really listening to what people are telling you. Narratives are really important. There's an American, a Harvard-based psychiatrist, he's retired now, called Arthur Kleinman, who talks about the importance of narratives in medicine. So this is, he's being very medical, which the book's not, the book's very health-focused. But anyway, and the people's stories make an enormous difference. So GPs often scratch their head about why hasn't, or even surgeons do, you know, I've done the perfect operation and they haven't got better. Or I've given all the drugs that should work here and they're not better. Because better is a different word from being healthy or well or what have you. And it feeds into that person's narrative. So if that person's narrative is a life where, and I, I talk about this and so you think you know what's good for you a lot. In fact, I get asked a lot, what are the simple solutions for my thing? How do I choose this in various diets? And I actually start very much talking about the world of the mind and the body, how they're one world, not two worlds, and how they interact. And your personal story, your personal narrative affects your body and your mind together. And this is not something that's soft and fluffy. This is actually solidly scientific. And so therefore, you could have the best doctor in the world who's gonna give you the perfect treatment, but if they've missed your narrative, you're not necessarily going to get better. Because if, if you're a person who's out of control of their life, doesn't have agency, that's what's got to be fixed rather than your sore tummy or your sore toe. And you don't get there without drawing out the narrative. And old-fashioned family medicine, I've never been a GP, I've trained in pediatrics, but old-fashioned family medicine knew the narratives. And now with corporate medicine, where you go along to a multi-partner practice and you don't see the same GP twice in a row, nobody knows your story. That is such a good point, Norman. I would like to ask you about the narratives that we hear around women and women's health. Now, that is a huge and broad specialty, but when we are picking up a book, when we are listening to the narratives that we see in the media... As you mentioned earlier, health literacy among the general population is a bit higher now than it was pre-pandemic. And we have all, if we didn't already know, picked up on the fact that some drugs work differently on women and on different age groups. So the theme of this week on Anonymous Was a Woman is thinking about tomorrow, the next day, the next month, the next year, the next decade. A broad question, but how can women fit themselves into a public narrative that either leaves them out or is trying to involve them, but the actual medical trials haven't necessarily been tested on 
women of a certain age demographic during menstruation, etc. That last question is a huge issue and a scandal where medical research has simply, as you say, ignored women, found reasons not to use them in trials and prejudice against them. It even goes down to animal research as well. So it's a top to bottom side to side problem in, in science. And it questions the validity, some of the fundamental validity of treatments, interventions, and so on. So, for example, with coronary heart disease, it's infamous that women are undertreated for their degree of coronary heart disease. And women have a very different form of heart disease from men. So they're not necessarily going to respond to the same therapies. Children, by the way, are also neglected in medical research. And the vast majority of drugs that are given to children have never been tested on them. They're off-label because they haven't been clinical trials. And children are not little adults. They behave differently. Look at schizophrenia. Schizophrenia behaves differently in women under research, misunderstood. May well be a different disease. Dementia is different in women. You're absolutely right. So it is a challenge for women. And the huge paradox here, and there's lots of paradoxes in So You Think You Know What's Good For You, which we can talk about later. But one of the huge paradoxes in what you've just asked me is that women are the gatekeepers of the health of families, and they always have been. They're the ones who tune into kids' health and well-being, their partners' health and well-being. And I don't, I don't know what sort of competition occurs in same-sex couples in terms of who actually is the gatekeeper there. They probably fight over it. But seriously, you're the gatekeeper. High knowledge, you're the person who purchases, the person who takes the kids to the doctor. And yet, as you say, you're excluded from the story. Hopefully that will change. This is a little bit of a broader question. I'm wondering for our listeners who haven't read the book yet, given that you're not trying to make this book, you know, sort of the be all and end all for everyone's individual problems, for people who are thinking about buying it, what are they actually going to get out of it? What is the aim of the book in your own words? What you'll get out of it is if I succeed, I will relieve a lot of your anxieties about health. People are anxious about all sorts of stuff. They're anxious about, should I be on a low-carb diet? Should I be in a high-protein diet? What are the supplements I should have? I'm really worried. No matter how hard I try, I only get five hours sleep. They tell me I'm going to get dementia. You know, the world is full of people with insomnia because they're worried about insomnia. The world is full of anxiety created by doctors, by health writers, by people who are into fad stuff. You know, which is the right fasting diet? Should it be 16-8 or 5-2? What's the right story here? And... People are anxious about it and they're worried that they're making the wrong decisions. And decision is actually part of the book, a very important part of the book. I say to people, all this is your choice. You've got to decide if, you know, you're a gay guy and you want to have a 3% body fat and be really ripped. That's great. You know, it's fine for you. And that's what your choice choices are. Here are the things you might want to think about. Here are the choices you might want to make. If you want to live young a long time, I'll show you some of the ways that you can actually do that, but that's your choice. So it's always putting the choice, it's giving you some choices here, even about sleep. You know, the world is, you know, this seven or eight hours is an average. If you've got a mental health issue, you really do need to get a good night's sleep. But if you're habitually getting five, six hours sleep a night and you're feeling fine, well, there's nothing to worry about. Equally, if you think five or six hours sleep a night and you get exercise, Again, there's nothing to worry about. You probably abolished all the effects. So it just puts things into perspective about a whole lot of things. There's a big section about this notion of agency and control and chronic stress 
and how that influences your body and your health and well-being. And that's probably the first thing in your life, if you can, that you want to sort out is, do I feel out of control? Do I feel I like agency? It comes to that question that you just asked, Ashford, which is about women who often feel that they've lost agency, which is why, actually, I've got a section in the book, what is it about turning 40 if you're a woman? which I, again, was very nervous about writing, I have to say, because I kept on meeting these 40-year-old women who were leaving their husbands, uh, changing their lives, very dissatisfied with it all, what was going on there. It's that control thing. I mean, working out what the whole picture is around you. So, for example, one of the paradoxes I talked about earlier was forget the French, the paradox is Greek. The second longest lived people in the world are Greek Australians, living in Melbourne probably, but the Greek Australians in the data. And people say, oh, that's the Mediterranean diet. Well, it's partly the Mediterranean diet, but it's how they cook. And they, they have fresh herbs in their backyard. They've grown their own vegetables. If you go to Coburg in Melbourne, you can see it. They've got a slow cooking oven. They cook slowly. They don't cook fast. Therefore, they don't get dangerous chemicals in. When you add herbs to the mix of olive oil, onions, carrots, and tomatoes, you get a magical mix of stuff that keeps you young. It literally does keep you young, anti-aging chemicals. In the middle of the raw food movement, the raw food movement doesn't know what they're missing out on because they miss out on the cuisine that makes a difference. Not all cuisines are great. I grew up Jewish. Jewish cuisine is a heart stopper, literally. But the Mediterranean diet is really good. So you get that sense and you get the package. And you could choose any one bit of the package. So they've got a backyard. They're getting exercise in their backyard. They're not eating a lot of red meat. They're cooking a lot. Their family comes around for dinner. They're cooking so, so they've got support around them. And a lot of Greek Australians, particularly in Melbourne, have either never left the church or they returned to the church later in life. And Greek Orthodox religion has 100 fast days a year. Now, these aren't Michael Mosley fasts. These are best described as vegan fasts, where they don't eat dairy, meat, fish, and so on. And there's 100 of them, almost on average, one day in three. It's not one day in regularity. That's the package. Anyone that you might want to choose would do you some good, but that's their package. It's not for everybody, but it gives you a sense of... I don't use the word holistic once in the whole book, but it's, it's the complete picture of mind, body, environment, the people you love, the people you like, the people you have around you, how you cook and how you eat. You don't have to use the word holistic. You are laying out choices and options and information and insight for your readers who can then take a look at their own lives and take a look at their own personal circumstance and make better choices or create a better lifestyle going forward. My final question to you, Norman, is not at the individual level, but it kind of is on behalf of the women listening. As you said earlier, women are often the gatekeepers to their family and friendships health. They look after people. And let's face it, the world has had a difficult 18 or so months. It will continue to be difficult. And I guess my question is, how can we each contribute to looking after each other? And that's not just walking in the park together or something. What do we need to do as a society to uh, get over the trauma that we have collectively just experienced? Who am I to answer that question really? But I can give you just a personal view on it is that I've kind of moved a bit into myself, understand myself a lot better through all this. So I just don't think you can give to others unless you're centered in yourself. And that's not self-centeredness, it's not narcissism, although 
some people might say I'm a supreme narcissist. But essentially, you've got to be centered in yourself, know what you want, know what you need, feel that you've got agency, I keep on coming back to that word, and then you're in a solid or solid foundation to reach out to others and help them. So the great joy of having people around, of cooking for them, putting stuff on the table, extending your social network. I mean, you think at some point in your life, I've got enough friends, I don't really need any more. But knowing who counts in your life, it's stuff you already know, but it's just when you're feeling centered in yourself and confident, and women are very good at providing that support to each other, then you can reach out and extend safely beyond that and productively. And if we all do that to 5, 10, 15 people, if we're lucky enough to have 5, 10, 15 people you can reach out to, then that's a recipe for a pretty happy life. You paint a good picture, Norman. <laughs> do as I say, but not as I do. <laughs> Let's all go get some Mediterranean food. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I'm feeling peckish. Thank you so much, Norman, for joining us. I highly commend your latest work. So you think you know what's good for you to everybody who is listening. And once again, thank you for all of your public work over the last year or so. Thank you very much. You've been very kind. Thank you for joining Sally Spicer and I today as we spoke to Dr. Norman Swan. This is the final episode in this season of Anonymous Was a Woman. We will be back for season five in a few weeks, all thanks to the wonderful folk at Hachette Publishing. See you soon.